Well, hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will uh, look at part three of four of uh, Following the Equator. Those are my divisions, not in the book. I think it's chapters like 35 to 255 or 38 to 55, something like that. It's dealing with India. Um, and much of the second half of this book is about his time in India. There's some stuff on South Africa, too, which we'll get to in the next episode. In fact, that'll be the focus of it. But uh, what does he have to say about India? Um, obviously, the experience is going to be different than that of the Pacific, where he's experiencing much more the devastation of empire. Um, and in India, it's it's more of a, like encountering a culture that couldn't be displaced by British imperialism quite in the same way you do couldn't have like settler colonialism in, in in the same way in india as you did in the in australia due to the established empire right um now that empire got sort of displaced and undercut but it's still there um and the civilizations are there and the polities are there and and of course the british did their best to totally dismantle that and tear it up but it, it's it's a, it's a different kind of conversation and much of what i read for this section is is mark twain kind of reflecting on indian traditions and cultures he's being a bit of an orientalist here um and not not necessarily in a bad way. I think he's he's making some really interesting observations throughout this. Um, but at the same time, you have like this overarching thematic of of English civilization, and it is to some degree about the like the world coming together, right? World history, which I've read a lot of over the years, tends to look at the fl at the flows of history and and kind of has this like looking from from above right i like to look at history from below and there's some good world history that does look from below but there's something that that kind of drives you to look from above right which which yeah it exposes the flows of history really well but it covers up like questions of class and inequality and power and and that's kind of like I what I that's one reason I like like the history of empire because imperial history sort of reminds us that globalizations of the past, which empires were, were disruptive and brutal. Um, right. Um, we don't want to the network concept of history, right? Um, sort of trivializes societal dimensions flattening power and things like that um and i think looking at empire you're like forced to come to terms with power more than like people who write about world history and tend to look at systems and tend to look at, at like commerce and the flow i guess i mean I, i'm probably protesting too much i think there's good work in this in this realm but but a lot of what i have read does focus a little bit too much on the flow and even ones on the left that that tend to see kind of history as this tsunami that kind of crosses over bringing bringing something to people and not the nuance and details and the nitty-gritty of empire and, and i think a traveler account like mark twain kind of gives us a little bit more of that
Um, now, this is a powerful book, as I've been saying in the last couple episodes. Mark Twain following the equator. Um, in a way, it's looking at the reformation of class boundaries in a global system created by European imperialism. Twain's tour of the world was really a tour of the Anglo-American Empire. He's not looking at the French Empire or the German Empire. He's focusing on English-speaking places because he is doing a lecture tour. So he's going to places that like paid him to to give his talks. So as I was saying, he first visited Hawaii, um, then Australia, then the South Pacific, then India, and then finally South Africa. And he's seen worlds that were already heavily incorporated into the world system created by Europeans. And there's me kind of looking at the flows again and the systems. Um, now, a lot of what you see in the Pacific, well, the Pacific elements of this voyage have to deal with like labor migration and violence. And this kind of changes a little bit in the second half of the story with the shift to India and Africa. Um, but these are areas where Europeans had to contend with existing um, cultures that, that, that not only had deep roots, just as the Pacific cultures did, but ones that could not be easily supplanted as in Australia or ignored or kind of sidelined. Right. Because you don't have settler colonialism in India. You do in Africa, of course. But even there, it's like you never had the replacement to the degree that you had in, in the Pacific or at least in the South Pacific. Now, Twain devotes much of the second half of the book to understanding the culture and society of South Asia. So it's really India is really where your focus is going to be. Um, but as the book makes clear, although Hindu society was not at risk of being destroyed, it was under great stress and violent transformations as a result of British rule. Um, now, there's things he misunderstands. Like, for instance, when he kind of exaggerates famine as part of Indian culture, anyone who's read uh, um, Mike Davis's late Victorian Holocaust will know quite well that famine was not a common feature of Mughal India. In fact, there was ways of, they had ways of avoiding it. Famine was a result of British rule, and those deaths are on the are those tens of millions of deaths are on the hands of the British, not Indian culture so much. But um, he does get to this strain. In chapter 41, for instance, he summarizes uh, how like a local Indian princes are being strained by the British modernization pro process. Um, like a century earlier, they would have thanked the British for not overtaxing or for not, quote, bringing famine upon them, end quote. So here he kind of exposes the reality, which was the British that brought the famines. It was the British who brought the suffering to uh to india by transforming their their systems um but by the end of the 19th century these local princes this is the time mark twain's there their power had evaporated by quote factories schools hospitals reforms and all the other institutes of colonial modernity it was these institutions that did the job of reforming the class lines of colonial india and africa um but let's focus on india for now now the there's limits to this, right? So we got like the thuggies and we got sati and we got like caste and we got these kind of traditional Indian 
culture that Mark Twain's quite interested in. Parsi funerals, all, all kinds of interesting stuff going on here in the account. Like the Parsi funeral stuff was wonderful. How they would, they didn't burn them, they didn't bury them, they left them out like on the tower to like dry out and be eaten by vultures and things. And he was really fascinated by this. He was fascinated by Sate and the efforts of the British to try to end Sate. Um, but he spends chapter after chapter on the thugs, which I don't know that much about myself. I, I guess they were like a secret society. Um, obviously, our word thug comes from the, the thuggy. And if you've seen Indiana Jones, you got your own interpretation of the thuggies from there. But my understanding was kind of like just a religious subculture in India that, that engaged in kind of gangster type behavior. But to some degree, it's hard not to imagine that this was like a this wouldn't have existed had not the British took over. It was like coming out of the, the interaction like between Britain and India and how like the destabilization of India led to, uh, you know, new new social forces like the thuggy. And then or also like the straining and, and transformation of more traditional Indian things like sati. Now, now sati, of course, was a Brahman thing as far as I know it. But. You know the British sort of banned it, and he gives an example of that. And this old, this widow is like starving herself to death because she's not allowed to like burn herself and kill herself in the traditional way. And it's it's kind of horrific to to see the description of it, but it it's a cultural zone under crisis. So in the process of these institutional changes, colonial India was becoming a progressively more violent and divided place. And I think Twain's quite good on this. Uh, he digs up court trials, stories of American style hucksterism. Of course, that's something that's gonna pique his interest. And most significantly, and like just in terms of like the bulk of the text, it's like the history of the rise of the thug cult. This is all kind of presented, you gotta squint a little bit to see it, but, but I think it's not far from the surface. Uh, to see how British rule like destabilize Indian society. And he does point out that there's this inherent diversity of cultures in South Asia and they played a role in the rise of the thuggy in the same way like secret societies in China were built on on certain indigenous traditions, but they come out, they're just they, they are broken free by the disruption of empire like the like the Taiping rebellion or or whatever. Um he relishes actually in pointing out that thuggy were a mirror of European imperial barbarism. I, I had to like make a big mark on my book when I saw this. He writes, we white people were merely modified thugs, thugs fretting under the restraint of a not very thick skin of civilization. Thugs who long ago enjoyed the slaughter of the Roman arena and later the burning of doubtful Christians by authentic Christians in the public squares. And who now with the thugs in Spain and Nimes flocked to the enjoy the blood and misery of the bull ring end quote like getting to animal rights there is something i maybe i'll talk about more next time but it's actually quite stunning um and of course the best example in history of the british imperialism disrupting Indian society is the sepoy mutiny which was 50 years before this visit by 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 mark twain so it's like british have ruled for like a century by this point to some degree over india it's well established. It's not like the other new imperialist empires, where it was like, by this point, some of them were just starting. Like in Africa, imperialism was, was basically just starting by the 1890s. But in India, it had been going on for a century. Um, but the scars of the Sepoy Mutiny were still there for Twain to notice and reflect on, you know, this, this much at this time. 
Okay, so he starts his exploration of India with like some like like his dreams of India. He kind of starts with that, and then he kind of gets to the reality of India through um, like what he observes. And so he starts out with like the Indian servant. So he's looking at it through Orientalist eyes in a way because that's something most Indians would of course have but he spends a lot of time talking about the Indian servant and this is part of his first impression of Indian culture which of course is going to taint it because he's seen someone who's in the service industry and and I think this is a issue in general maybe with with not just European imperialism but tourism in general where you go to I, I, one thing I like you hear all the time in Taiwan from foreigners is how nice Taiwanese are and it's like, especially tourists say, it. I think less so people who lived here a while, but tourists will say it all the time. And it's like, yeah, you're going to motels and restaurants all the time. Of course, people are going to be nice to you. you if you only go to hotels and restaurants in America, you're going to come away saying Americans are nice too. You know, all these people carrying your baggage for you and opening doors for you and, and, and parking your car for you or whatever. It's like, yeah, you're encountering the service industry. Of course, people are going to be nice to you. It's it's not necessarily that the culture is actually that nice. Sorry, that's a little bit of a, of a side rant, but um, yeah. So like he, then he talks about the housing. He goes to like or the government house is the next thing he sees at Malabar Point, and he writes of it. That was England, the English power, the English civilization, the modern civilization with the quiet elegancies and the quiet colors and quiet tastes and quiet dignity that are outcomes of modern cultivation. And following it came a picture of ancient civilization in India, an hour in the mansion of the native prince Kumar Shai Shamajiti Budar of the Palatina state, who uh, is, a, is a young heir of the empire with a child bride and all this stuff. So he's, he's like starting like this European bubble and then he slowly gets kind of branches out and is exposed to more of of Indian culture in its various degrees and then he starts to venture out more and more talking about like Parsis and their funerals Jain temples and and he spends a lot of time getting more and more into into Indian culture but it's always like disrupted it's like you'll get the sense that so much of this has been like overturned by 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 you know the reality of being like a colonial subject of, of great britain but he's not really has enough information or knowledge to fully analyze it yet like we do we we know this history a lot better than than he does and it allows us to kind of to to look at the thing a little more cynically um but yeah i think the highlight of this section of the book without a doubt is the is the look at the thuggy cults which carries on for several chapters and, and he, he apparently even looked at like newspaper accounts and court records and things to to expose that and he probably did a lot to to put the idea of the thugs in the minds of of, of European and American readers at the time but at the same you know he's also as I pointed out before saying they're not that different from the English like if they're barbarians like we're just as bad I mean our history doesn't has things just as you know much worse than this um, and he certainly seems to be disrupted bothered by the the efforts to transform culture like that's why he has this chapter on the sati where he kind of sees the limits of British power in the cultural realm 
where there's this effort to kind of ban sate and this woman just kind of starts killing herself in a much more like horrible way actually like letting herself starve to death um now throughout all this we also get travel uh accounts where he goes to different places like uh, alabad and benares which is just uh what's it called now to varnanashi um but that was a city on the ganges um and that's an interesting ex place too where he talks about like the the pilgrimages and the amount of culture taking there and the amount of temples and he he's really um he's got a wonderful chapter where he kind of actually contrasts the pilgrimage to uh to uh varanasi benares whatever uh, you know with catholicism because it has this like purification ritual and uh you know, forgiveness of sin and all that kind of stuff. The cleansing of sin, which he, he seems to want to compare to Catholicism. Whether that's just or not, I'll let, let uh, listeners decide, I suppose. Um, but overall, a lot of really wonderful stuff, I think, in this section. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I, I spent a whole, like, afternoon at work just just reading through this in a, in a much more, like, focused way than I often do. It's not just taking notes for for the podcast but actually like taking it in and and kind of breathing it and and i enjoyed it but you know it's not quite as brutal as the first half of following the equator but then at the same time you, you realize that you're in a culture that's being like disrupted uh very profoundly by by colonialism and i i think post-colonial scholars should like maybe look at this book and and, and not just see it as it's just another whitey's observations on on india because i i think there's some good meat here maybe not a lot but some some interesting stuff and and i think this books like this must have had a huge impact on just how europeans and americans looked at india over over the years it's not as politicized i think as the first parts of the book it, it in some ways it is more of a the travel logs like we've seen before where it's just like what's going on here breathing in the culture but there's there's a little bit of of there's, there is that kind of more cynical edge to this that compared to some of the earlier travel logs so um i guess that's all i'm gonna say i'm gonna finish up my my thoughts on the following the equator in the next episode and um and then put away this book and jump to uh the gilded age so one more if you can bear with me one more episode where I'm going to dig into the travel literature of Mark Twain and then we'll be done with that uh, unless it pops up and you know unless I do the short the short essays and, and, and stories of Mark Twain and there's some travel literature fit, fit in there it might happen but I'm thinking uh, I think I might not do that I might take a break from Mark Twain after this and then after looking at the final novels and then jump to some other um writers um but we'll see uh yeah but uh one more episode on the travel literature and i'll finish up my thoughts about following the equator with what he has to a little bit more what he says about india particularly in bengal and then what he has to say about south africa so that's it for now thanks for listening and i will see you next time <laughs>